Welcome to episode 24 of Canthropod, the Cambridge Anthropology podcast, hosting episode 1 of Artery, a podcast on art, authorship and anthropology. Welcome to Artery with Isa Kavejia, a podcast on art, authorship and anthropology. In each episode of this collaborative podcast, one anthropologist specializing in a particular cultural context has a conversation with an artist of their choosing, exploring issues of authorship and responsibility in art. In this episode, Fran Edmonds, a researcher at the University of Melbourne, speaks with Marie Clark. This episode is a field recording, so it means that you might hear some of the sounds outdoors but it will hopefully also give you a flavour of ethnographic fieldwork. I will hand over to Fran to introduce herself and her guest. It's Fran Edmonds here. Um, we're in Marie Clark's backyard, which is in Yarraville, in the inner city suburb of Yarraville, yes, in the inner city suburb of Melbourne. Um, I'm Fran. I'm a researcher at the University of Melbourne and I've been working with Marie for probably the last 20 years. Um, Marie was actually my field supervisor for my PhD and has been a mentor to me ever since, basically. Introduced me to everybody really in the art world, in um, the Aboriginal art world in Victoria. And we've between us, we've um, kind of just cruised along for the past 20 years, talking about art, writing about art, um, and hanging out in Marie's backyard. Uh, Ray, do you want to introduce yourself and yeah, so, who you are and what you do? So my name's Marie Clark. Um, I've been a practising artist for over 30 years. Moved to Melbourne in pardon me, in 1988 to paint the first green and gold tram to hit the tracks of Melbourne and basically went back up to Mildura in north west Victoria, packed up my little flat, moved back to Melbourne and I've been working as an artist and curator ever since. And then, yeah, met Fran many, many moons ago <laughs> um, and we've travelled around the state mm. a bit and sort of, I don't know, been working on different projects and the most recent being the Living Archive of Aboriginal Art where basically we document everything that goes on in my backyard that will get uploaded eventually to this um, brilliant archive that will then be accessible for community and for young people and it'll be full of stories and images and films. And um, I do a lot of work with my great nephew, Mitch Marnie. And we've been making little mini docos here in the backyard, just using our mobile phone to connect with a community up north at Nooka. And so it could be on, you know, the documentary could be on the grinding of, of ochre pigment and making that into a paint and using bottle resin as a fixative in that or um, Mitch taking the sinew out of the tail of a kangaroo to make 
you know, kangaroo tooth necklaces or to create a thread. But all of these different little processes, we document, yeah, basically everything. The plucking of the birds, I'm just sitting here now and there's about 10 containers of feathers from all different types of birds um, mm. that Mars been collected a couple of weeks ago. And then just over on this other little table is a blue bucket full of the jaws of a kangaroo. Now, these are all just sitting in situ, just waiting for the ABC <laughs> to come around later this week to make another doc- little documentary for the art show. Um, but basically, my house is like being surrounded with everything. So on that, re, we'll, um, we'll try and stick to the guidelines that they've got here, which is around authorship and art. So the idea is for you to talk a little bit about the work you make and how you go about making the work mm-hmm. and and how you feel about deciding on who, you know, how you name yourself as the author when a lot of your work is quite collaboratively based. Mm. Yeah. Oh, so now here's Mitch Marnie Marie was just talking about. Yes. We're, we're making a podcast, Mitch. <laughs> this is this is what happens in Marie's backyard yeah. all the time. It's There's always, always someone always in. people popping in. Work to be made. So we're talking about um, how Marie, uh, you know, how she decides on what kind of work she's going to make and always there's people involved in the making of the work and how you decide on authorship of that work. And I'm assuming that this is going to be caught up in a very culturally based kind of process as well around, um, you know, who has the authority to, to make the art and that kind of thing. Oh, I think anybody has the authority to make the art. I think what makes my work quite different is that absolutely everything that I do, I'm sharing, you know, with Mitch and the other nieces and nephews. And like this next body of work where I need eight of the nieces and nephews, but it's my idea, my intellectual property, but I'm sharing that knowledge and creating other avenues of mourning, if you like, hmm. and looking at that in a different way. Well, you're talking about mourning, but what if it's, yeah. um, I mean, people don't know what the mourning practice is that you're talking about specifically. Yeah. Oh, so... Do you want to talk about that? I guess, you know, um, usually, I guess, you know, when we talk about mourning, I should also mention that we used to make like kopi, um, kopi caps, which are referenced as widow's caps, but they were also made by, I mean, worn by men. And you would wear like a clay cap on your head weighing up to seven kilos. And you would wear that either until it fell off your head or at the end of your mourning period, take it off and place it on the grave. So I, I think a lot of my work sort of references mourning mm. and this next body of work that I'm making with the dresses and um, I have three flowers that I'm referencing as death flowers. Um, but, yeah, everything I do, I'm, I'm sharing that knowledge and stories with my family. 
So is there any work that you feel, um, I mean, this, it's a difficult question because all your work is so collaborative, but do you, is there any work that you have ever felt that you're not the author of, even though you've been named on as the maker of? No, I don't think so. No, I don't no. think, I can't think of no. anything. Because I get the idea to make these supersized things and to make these supersized 50 metre necklaces is to then get a team of people to help me make and create. Um, you know, the boys love going down to the river to collect the river reeds. It's quite a laborious thing to do. What? Who, who are the boys? Um, the husband, Nicholas and Mitch um, and Tobias have all been down the river to collect me the river reeds. Tobias is Nicholas's son, yeah, right? Tobias yeah. is Nicholas's son. And then once you get at home, you have to bundle them, tape them, cut them. So these are the... <laughs> so we're these. looking at a big red bucket full of cut river reed. There must be how many... Uh, how so many one bucket would make um, two river reed, two fifty metre river reed necklaces? Okay, wow. Um, and they're all cut to size, and they're about like what two centimetres long? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we do that sort of. You've got to get all the husks off them. Then you've got to sort them. I then dye them, dry them drill them, glue feathers, and once you get to that stage, it's like gluing the feathers is just like another whole process yeah. in itself. And can you tell us about how you get the feathers? So who goes out and collects them? So for the feathers, and Nicholas um, just came back with his mate Reuben last week from a, doing a big 1,000-kilometre road trip up into central New South Wales before COVID, um, and came back with five or six dead birds from galahs, cockatoos, crows. Were they hawks. mainly? Were they oh hawks? Beautiful. Yeah. Were they mainly roadkill, or were they all, just all roadkill? All roadkill. Mm. Um, so they collected the birds, and then also a whole bucket full of um, of kangaroo teeth. So basically, to make the kangaroo tooth necklace. You have to stop at all the dead kangaroos and pull their teeth out. And so Nicholas has a particular hunting knife, yeah, um, tin snips, pliers, and just steel cap boots. <laughs> so, so when we're talking about this, you're the sole, you're the main author of these artworks. When yeah. we're saying author, we mean yeah. maker. Yeah. And so, why are you the main author if well, there's all these people? This is a, this is yeah. like I'm just asking these questions for mm. us to try and think through this process a little bit. Why why are you the named main author? Because I guess I was the one that instigated the remaking and creating of these cultural items that were held in museum collections. And I could quite easily go out and collect all of these materials myself. But absolutely everything I do, I like to share that knowledge and that experience. And it's a whole experience getting in a car, travelling a 1,000 kilometres and stopping at the dead kangaroos. And I photograph all the kangaroos that I take the teeth from, so I've got a whole collection of photographs. But also to share that knowledge and information of collecting 
Then it's another process when you get it home, which is boiling, getting the plaque off the teeth and preparing it, preparing the sinew, taking the sinew from the tail of a kangaroo, um, which the boys do. So that's like, I've heard you talk about that as men's business. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I'm vegan and I I just can't do that (laughs) side of it. And I know I could if I I had to, but um, there are always men around that, that want to do that that process and I've taught my nieces and nephews how to put together a kangaroo tooth necklace and Nicholas has shown the boys how to take the sinew and he's shown the girls how to take the sinew out of the tail of a kangaroo. So we need that sinew to bind the tooth to kangaroo leather when we're making the kangaroo tooth necklaces. Mm. But we've also used organic kangaroo teeth in my new 3D printed jewellery collection where there are 3D printed teeth but we've used an organic tooth in that, in that mix. Mm. So people see what an organic tooth looks like alongside a 3D printed 18 karat gold plated kangaroo tooth or the plasticky sort of 3D printed tooth. So it's interesting that conversation. So, you know, you've started off like it's quite a, I guess, for want of a better word, a traditional skill that you've mm. adapted and changed to mm. very contemporary times. So the whole yeah. conversation shifts from collecting yeah. carcasses and stripping them and doing things that yeah. back in the day um, mm. people would have done yeah. however many thousands yeah. of years ago. Yeah. And now... And now I'm getting, like, a company in New York to 3D print me 18 karat gold-plated kangaroo teeth mm. or the plastic teeth. But to me, it's continuing cultural practice and keeping culture alive in the 21st century using new materials. Um, and just consider that the kangaroo only has two bottom incisor teeth that we can use for the necklace. So that's an awful lot of kangaroos when you're making a 75 tooth necklace. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could be out on the road for a week and not collect as many teeth as what Nicholas and Reuben collected. Yeah. Um, Because what we're finding, and this is a couple of years ago, where I did another huge trip up into New South Wales and back, was that the local councils are collecting the dead kangaroos and moving them off the side of the road, and I don't know where they're taking them. Mm. But we're talking like you're in the middle of nowhere Mm. and you should see a lot of dead kangaroos. So... Mm. For us, it's about the supply of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting um, too how you establish these relationships with people. So there's family, obviously, that, you know, central to the process of learning alongside you and assisting you. But also those relationships with um, uh, professional bodies and technical technicians do you want to talk a little bit about um, the Canberra Glassworks and the and that relationship and how you yeah. go about um, having people fabricate? Yeah, work. and and then how you decide on authorship around that mm. kind of process as well. Well, I guess you know, like any sort of public artwork, where you, the artist, have the idea to create and make this work, but you don't have the physical skills to either weld or to blow glass 
um, and I worked a couple of years ago with Canberra Glassworks, where I flew to Canberra with a little piece of a little circle of plastic and a sketch of an eel trap and asked them if they could proportionally make me a, a three-metre glass eel trap in 20 sections because I wanted it to look really contemporary and, and different and I just wanted clear glass. And they'd shown me all these very busy glasses, you know, beautiful shapes and colours and everything, but I just wanted clear glass that you could see through. So they ended up um, making me one three-metre glass eel trap in 20 sections. And it's, yeah, creating a relationship with that company that can then realise your vision. Um, so did they did that really well and then offered me a solo exhibition where they then made me a second glass eel trap and I invited Mitch Marnie, my nephew, to be part of that exhibition too. Mm. And he wanted to make glass possum pelts that he then etched designs into and he used um, this other coloured glass to create images that represent men and women mm -hmm. that I created for one of my paintings years ago. But it's like we're now also creating designs that represent us mm. and it's, you know, always telling story mm. and continue to tell stories, which is how culture and knowledge is passed on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, so we're just looking at some um, glass beads that Marie had so these are glass river reeds. Um, so for the exhibition at Canberra Glassworks, um, so this is the sound of all of these beautiful glass river reeds. And they even have the little um, pinks in them. Mm. Yeah. And they also made me glass seed pods, which I fill with ochre and charcoal from the country. And I call those a moment in time because they're capturing a moment in time from from country, um, and that's fantastic. And and what I will then do with all of the different works that I do is pass it, this on to you know my nieces and nephews mm. so that they can in the future use these designs or materials in their own work. Mm. Mm. So I'm just going to kind of fast forward to now we've been talking about Marie's process of um, she's done a lot of research in museums around revivifying her ancestral material culture in the museums um, do you want to talk about um, that relationship between that work and then how that's carried forward into Marie has a very big retrospective at the premier art gallery in Victoria, which is the National Gallery of Victoria. She's the first um, living Victorian Aboriginal artist and a woman artist mm. at that to have a show, a solo show at the NGV. Um, so it's pretty special in a way. And so a lot of her work is based on around these um, this research practice. Mm. Do you want to talk about how that's, how you around the authorship of that because it yeah. is comes from ancestral knowledge in a way, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. so what's the title of the exhibition so and that kind of thing? The exhibition's called Ancestral Memories and I guess 
that came about from the eel trap because the eels have ancestral memory and go back to the place of their parents. But also, I guess because of all the research that I do in museum collections around the world and looking at our material cultural items held in those collections and also here in Melbourne. And then learning how some of these objects and items were put together and relearning that skill of putting them together, going out on country, collecting materials and then fabricating that. Now, we've only seen a few sketches. There's not an awful lot of writing about these objects and how they were put together. So I think what we're doing, and especially um, sort of using the Living Archive as a platform to keep that information, but absolutely documenting everything that we do, from, you know, collecting the river reeds. Um, in my exhibition, there's a really early river reed necklace. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, that's from? from Borrowed from the Melbourne Museum. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's quite a few other things. Objects. Yeah. Yeah, so the river reed necklace goes from that to the smaller ones held in the, like, the contemporary ones in the glass case to the big 50-metre ones hanging on the wall. Mm. And They're all yours, so the glass case ones are your early river reeds. Yeah, yeah. yeah, from, um, I think, one borrowed from the Koori Heritage Trust, which was the first one that Len and I had put together. So Len Trigoning was a gunno man who was... Um, yeah, so Len was a gunno man and we, um, from Gippsland, um, from Lake Tyres Aboriginal Trust, and we made the first um, 27 tooth and then 75 tooth kangaroo tooth necklace, but he also put together the biggest kangaroo tooth necklace to date with 123 teeth. And he bound that necklace in one sitting. Like mm. it took quite a while, quite a few hours. Both of you are named as the makers of that yeah. object, aren't you? Yeah, mm. yeah. So that was pretty incredible. And now, you know, in that glass case is the other kangaroo tooth necklace where Nicholas had shown the nieces and nephews how to pull the sinew out. They bound the teeth. And that has one of the 18 karat gold plated kangaroo teeth in it. And then. Is this in the show? Is it, this is in is, my yeah. exhibition at, at the NGV. And then it sort of moves from the early echidna quill necklaces to the river reed necklaces, to the kangaroo tooth necklaces, and then to the glass. Mm. And so the glass river reed necklaces are. Yeah, glass, so Canberra Glassworks fabricated all of the glass river reeds and then I used an organic river reed dyed black and glued feathers into it and it's it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. So there are some big 10-metre glass river reed necklaces hanging on the wall there too. So it is a spectacular exhibition. So yeah. how do you describe your relationship to that artwork? Like it ranges from mm. your black and white photographs, which yeah. are part of um, what Marie has referred to. From the early to. 90s. Yeah, um, and they're, they're forming part of the living archive that we're working on together, yeah. Yeah. which is trying to establish yeah. stories in connection with Marie's artwork. And, yeah. and I guess... So it goes from that to... <coughs> to the possum skin cloak, yeah. 
Yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing exhibition. So how do you, so, the relationship that you have with these artworks? You know, I think, mm, well, there's a lot of memory in this show and sort of when you look at the black and white photographs, which are, you know, either of generations of families together or portraits of people or the NAIDOC marches. NAIDOC, um, do you want to tell people what um, NAIDOC is? So NAIDOC is sort of National Aboriginal Week where there's um, this celebration of Aboriginal culture um, and it's a week-long celebration um, in Australia where, yeah, Aboriginal people are the focus of a whole range of things. Um, so I used to, and there's a big march throughout the city. And this year um, Ash Barty won Wimbledon. Yes. <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, to, to go on these NAIDOC marches and always trying to keep ahead of the crowd so you get these great crowd shots of, you know, hundreds of people, you know, marching down the street, you know, and they're called the land rights marches and people holding banners and mm. placards and things. Um, and then, yeah, there's a big celebration later. But it was pretty amazing to see some of those photographs in, in the mm. exhibition, which a lot of those photos I hadn't printed before. So to see them was, you know, lots of memories in those photos. And then, you know, you turn to the right and you see all the morning photos and... Oh, you do you want to describe the historical the, yeah. Kopi morning cap, mm, yeah. which is held in the, the museum collection. And that Kopi morning cap was collected by George Murray Black, who had travelled the Murray-Darling Rivers, taking the skeletal remains from country, the ancestral remains. And they ended up back at the Melbourne Museum and Melbourne University so along with the skeletal remains, they'd taken these Kopi morning, morning caps, the widow caps. Um, and the skeletal remains were eventually returned back to country that could be provenance. And the other ones are buried in the domain gardens, in the botanical gardens in Melbourne, with a plaque representing or mentioning all 38 tribes of Victoria. Um, and they're buried under this big boulder and there was a big procession down St Kilda Road for the reburial. And those ancestral remains were wrapped in paper bark and then placed in this grave mm. and then buried under the big boulder. Well, I, in 2010, um, did some research on the mourning practices of my own mob because I didn't know. So we well, um, haven't told people who your mob is yet. Ah, uh, but... Um, Sorry. When I talk about mob, I'm talking about community. And, you know, I'm connected to quite a few different um, traditional groups here in, in Australia, from New South Wales and Victoria. And my connection also goes back to Tipperary in Ireland and Dunstable in the UK. Which and I Tasmania. Have, oh, and Tasmania. But I have also represented on my cloak um, all the different countries that I'm connected to. And I love that I had some green ochre where I could represent Tipperary and Dunstable because without Amelia Guild, the great, great 
grandmother five times back from Tipperary and George Briggs from Dunstable in the UK. Um, we might be here but just in another form. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> yeah. But just But just those, those ancestral connections back to yeah. country along the Murray, which is yeah. where you grew up really. Yeah, the Murray, Murrumbidgee, Darling Rivers. Mm. So, so that's where a lot of those morning practices that you're talking about, yeah. the Kopi caps and things. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to work with like 38 Aboriginal women to represent the 38 tribes of Victoria. And they're all wearing this morning marking that, um, you know, which is like a white ochre across your eyes and white ochre in your hair. And I made their Kopi morning caps. And then I went on to work with, I don't know, 45 Aboriginal men and made their copies, but I'd also designed seven T-shirts for the men to wear to represent the scars that they would have worn during, you know, ritual, ceremony, mourning. And I coloured their copies with red ochre to represent bloodletting. And that's like hitting yourself on the head with a bundi or something so that you bleed. And the weight of your Kopi morning cap, which weighed up to seven kilos, is to feel the weight of your grief and to carry that for an extended period of time so that when you took it off, you're quite free to move on and you can feel it. It's physical. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's quite amazing. So it sort of makes me think, like, all of these practices involve other people. You're not doing this all by yourself. So what do you feel is the responsibility you have then in the making of this art? What kind of responsibility do you feel? I guess, you know, one, I'm lucky enough to be able to work in an area that I'm so passionate about and to share that knowledge with my family. And I guess it's to try and leave a legacy or something for them um, because they're all so interested and um, they're all part of my artwork, my practice. And whatever I'm making, whatever I'm doing, I'm always including other people. And I think it's, I don't know, it just makes the work much more interesting. Mm. Um, you know, when we sewed the 63 pelt possum skin cloak, which was... Which takes, which takes up... <sighs> Like it does feel that almighty space in the NGV, it which is a, how big is that wall? It's massive. It's a big wall. But not um, high, high ceilings. It's like nine metre ceilings mm. and the width, that cloak is probably three and a half metres wide, four metres wide probably. Mm. But what were we saying about the um, the nieces and nephews? And oh, so yeah. When, when we made the, the cloak here in my backyard, um, we had quite a few family and friends come around and help um, sew the cloak. And I, I just live in this tiny weenie inner city sort of place with a little concrete backyard and three puppies who you would have heard before. Um, but I did not have a space big enough to, to lay out the 63 pelts, so I had to take it over to my gallery, like my gallery representative, and had to lay the the pelts out on her floor and cut the pelts <laughs> over there yeah. and then label them, number them and bundle them 
to bring them home. And, yeah, it, it's a bit of a process then when you start sewing. Yeah. Because I, oh, gosh. It's, it's a learning. Like I, I'm not a great sewer and mm. the more when you do it and you don't do it as re- I'm not a regular possum sewer or possum mm. skin cloak sewer mm. and it is very hard work. Marie's hands are testament to, mm. <laughs> to the. Well, they're much better now. Yeah, but, um, but they can really wreak, really wreak havoc. On. Yeah. So I'm just thinking too and I'm just reflecting on some things I've heard you say in the past around um, there was a question that someone asked the other day to you about um, how do you get permission to make, if these are connected to ancestral mm. items and have you ever had any back flack from people or anybody come up to you and ask, you know, question you no. about your um, responsibility or your yeah. rights to make particular yeah. objects? And- yeah. Well, I don't see anybody else out there making the work that I do. Um when I made the first lot of Kopi morning caps, I got permission off my elders to make that work. And how does how do you go about that process, um, Ree? Well, I talked to um, one of my aunties before she passed a few years ago, um, whether or not it was okay for me to actually make that work, because we're talking about you know a morning practice that hasn't been practiced down in the southeast you know, for quite some time. Mm. And it was still practised after invasion because some of those historical Kopi caps had European material on the inside, whereas traditionally women would weave a net of emu sinew, place it on their head and plaster their head with gypsum. And you can see the different weaves inside the Kopi morning caps from the different areas, mm. which had a slightly different weave. Right. But some also had this European material, printed material, okay. inside the cap. Where, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and they've built them up. Mm. Um, I have to show you an image. Mm. But, you know, that tells me that even after invasion, people were doing that, but people aren't doing that in the southeast anymore. And quite possibly in more remote communities, I would say people would be... Um, still wearing the kopi, mm. um, wearing the, the white morning marking. And when Len passed away a few years ago, we had ochre on the table as people walked in that could, you know, mark it, their face. Yeah, this is at his funeral. With the yeah. ochre, and that hadn't happened in any other sort of, um, you know, funeral ceremony that I'd been to. Mm. And... You remember for that one, we got the five elders um, of the five clans of the Kulin Nation to do a smoking ceremony for him and brought him in. And it was the first time the Melbourne Museum had actually had a ceremony like that in in Bunjalaka, the Aboriginal Museum based within the museum, where, you know, they were sending somebody back home mm. to the country because normally it's the ancestral remains that they they take. And, Keep in um, storage. Yeah, and it was just incredible to be able to do that at the Melbourne Museum because Len had such a great relationship and was instrumental in the development of Bunjalaka and they were just honoured that we'd asked them if we could have his ceremony there mm. because, you know, he wasn't religious and 
you know, Western society's mourning practices just don't work for Aboriginal people and they don't work for Western people, I don't think. Mm. And so to be able to then create our own ceremony where the coffin was painted by um, an Aboriginal artist from the same country where Len was from, so to be able to do that and then have the smoking ceremony um, and had him wrapped in his own possum skin cloak for burial and send him back home was pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah. I'm just thinking while you're talking, there's a lot of responsibility that you have mm. like on your shoulders mm. in terms of um, maintaining that practice. Mm. So while your work is like always collaborative and very community-based, um, the idea around authorship that you hold, I guess, is do you, do you think it's a fair enough thing to say that it is a responsibility that you take really, really, you know, Seriously? Yeah, you have to because we're talking about, you know, the continuation of cultural practice and and sharing that knowledge with that next generation. And, you know, I guess I'm lucky enough now that my great-nephew, who I do a lot of projects and work with. This is Mitch, who's um, just in the kitchen. Mitch Marnie. <laughs> yeah, we've got this other project we're working on together. Um, but just so lucky that he's now working at the Melbourne Museum mm. with our, you know, material cultural items and um, held in the, the museum collection. And, you know, we're planning like one, two years down the track of making these other sort of supersized, incredible objects um, out of glass and a whole range of things. <laughs> yeah, so, um, no, it's fantastic. And I know it's a, a huge responsibility and I just hope I do it sort of in a really respectful way yeah. of doing that research but also sharing that knowledge with this next generation, which Me I absolutely love. Mitch, this is like um, we haven't asked Mitch if he wants to contribute, but <laughs> no, I'm sure. So this is Mitch Marnie. Mitch, we're just talking to um, this is a podcast for some people in England that yeah. are doing it with other artists who work collaboratively around the world. Mm. Um, do you want to just introduce yourself quickly and talk a little bit about um, how you've yeah, been yeah. working with Marie and what, you know, your kind of role in... Yeah, no, in, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm Mitch Marnie, um, I'm a Bunuang fella, um, and I've been working with Annie Murray well, forever, oh. but um, ever since I was a little, little kid going along to her Possum King Cloak mm -hmm. workshop. Well, how um, old are you now? I'm 24 this year, <laughs> um, trying to remember. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been working with Annie Murray ever since I was a little, little tacker going along to workshops, but in the last... I think, what is it, two years, maybe three years um, mm. since I've been in Melbourne, I've really been working alongside Annie Murray in quite a few different projects, Possum Skin Cloak Workshops, mm. um, the Footscray Community Arts Eel Track Project, mm. Mm. Um, helping out with a solo exhibition at Mildura, um, the NGV solo exhibition, mm. everything and anything. I'm always so since, around helping out. Since Mitch moved to Melbourne... He has not stopped working as an artist. Mm. Yeah. And that, mm, 
Yeah, working as a full-time artist, then with a part-time job that generally links into my practice anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, I miss working at the Melbourne Museum um, yeah. with our collection items. and. Yeah, I currently work at Melbourne Museum um, as an assistant curator with Kimberley Moulton um, in the Southeastern Aboriginal collection. So mm. looking at all Southeastern... Um, Aboriginal cultural items, helping people come into the collections and engage with their cultural items, um, looking at what's on display in Bunjalaka, any aspects around the southeastern collection we generally work with. Mm. It's a big responsibility too, like we were just talking mm. about Marie. Yeah, huge. Yeah, because yeah. the thing about a lot of those collections is their unprovenance, so you've got the name of the collector but you don't really have the story connected yeah, to yeah. the item. That mm. seems to be one of the key things is... Um, a lot of, you know, really getting into people who know these items and know their stories and then building on those narratives of items that are in collections because of that exact reason. Um, we've got items that are unprovident in terms of their mob. They might have a location like a general locality, but they don't really have who their mob is. And then even items that are, you know, they are provident, they have where they're collected from, who the mob was that they're collected of and maybe even something like maybe the traditional name, and that being very rare, um, those items still don't have a large narrative around what they were used for, how they were used, um, mm. that is directly linked into the archives. Mm. Um, a lot of that information is extra information that you have to source from other areas, where it's something Melbourne Museum really wants to try and push is having all that information in the archive with the items so that mm. you can really learn right there on the spot what mm. these items are. So I'm thinking, I was just thinking too in terms of, because you both like do research into collections and when you were doing the um, kangaroo tooth necklace for Marie's solo exhibition in Mildura in 2019 and there was a whole mob of people around here yeah, like yeah. working yeah. with you. All the nieces and nephews. In 2019. <laughs> yeah, I know, it seems ages ago. And you, you actually were like, that was your first kangaroo tooth and it was, mm. it I mean, it was Marie's solo exhibition, but you were very much a part of that process. Yeah. How do you how do you um, see that as like your role in that kind of process? Um. <laughs> well, it was that necklace, but also the um, possum skin cloak. Yeah, and the yeah, possum that's too, right. which was just incredible, amazing. Well, like, mm. Yeah, it's that process of um, being passed down knowledge, and for me, it was an opportunity for me to help teach my cousins the knowledge I'd been passed down of possum skin mm. cloak. But then at the same time, you know, in the exact same workshop, being passed down a new knowledge of kangaroo tooth necklace making. Mm. And it's really special for me to be involved in that because it's part of, you know, connection to who you are, your mob, those people. But also because it's something I'm always so interested in. Um, when mm. I look at our cultural items in the museum, I just want to know how they're made um, and I want to learn that process. The process of mm. making is really the story for me. So... Having Anime, well, that's kind of something I've learnt from mm. um, is that process of making and the journey being part of that whole narrative. Mm. And I know just harking back, Ray, like we were mm. talking that, you know, when I said, oh, it's a, it's probably a cultural kind of phenomena around mm. you uh, being named as an author, like mm. it's something that you have yeah. the knowledge and yeah. you've earned the right to be the solo author of. Yeah. And... Mitch is in this position where he acknowledges that, I guess, mm. like in his, mm. I mean, and that's something yeah. I see not just in your relationship but yeah. within relationships in community. 
Well, what, what we were talking about last week is, like, mm. we're creating these new stories yeah. and new designs and new new things to sort of carry forward because if you don't change and adapt and create these stories, I believe culture will die and we're reviving and bringing back historical practices mm. um, and making them true to, you know, the collection items. But then we're also, um, you know, using new technologies and new materials to continue the story. Mm. But it's all based on historical content in museum collections and that's what I love to do. And that what were you saying before about the 60th, that great... Oh, um, so, yeah, I always get asked, um, and especially with the show now at the NGV, (laughs) um, what would you like people to go away with once they see your exhibition? What would you like them to take away with them? And... I've been asked that question so many times in the last two weeks. And the other day I just thought, you know what, this is 60,000 years of making, creating and passing on knowledge and sharing that information and journey with my family but with other family and friends that come to my home. Um, And I hope that people see that in the exhibition from the historical items because there's the Kopi Morning Cap, there's the River Reed necklace and the Kangaroo Tooth necklace. And we've recreated, and I say we because it's my family and I and friends that have been involved in the making and creating, but this stems back to over 60,000 years. So we're still continuing today in the 21st century um, these practices that have been passed on for thousands of generations mm. and we're just, you know, one little drop in this whole whole story. So we don't have, like, we're, we only had to do 40 minutes but I just want to put this last question to you both. Yeah. And, Marie, I know you'll have something to say about this. Mm. Where's your preferred place to make and create art? Here in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like moving far from here it's like just being embedded in so much in this backyard and you know Mitch came home one day with this huge boulder of a rock of red ochre so whenever he needs ochre or I need ochre we just walk out the back get the tomahawk scrape off a bit grind that up use that with whatever we're making use it for the glass seed pods but yeah I've been offered studios, but it's like, no, I just like Mm. to be surrounded with materials here in my backyard. And do you think that's got to do with family and people being here with you as well? Yeah, well, you know, even now today, Fran, since you've been here, like Mitch has popped in and Nicholas is inside and there's a couple of other people there that have helped, you know, collect different materials, the birds, the kangaroo teeth. So there's always something going on in this backyard. Yeah. What about you, Mitch? Like No, same. Um, I do a little bit at my own house. Um, but to be honest, I like to be here. It's, yeah. it's just easy. Everything's here. Um, I don't even here. Um, How about that, that canoe, <laughs> the market of the canoe? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, whipped yeah, up coming in the here, Yeah, coming here is easy. Like, everything's here. It's just so much easier to do the work. We've only made here for the help and just 
So that the space is, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. yeah. The space is just creative space. Um, mm. And to be honest, it's a space where you can come and be creative and not get as distracted. Um, mm. I find whenever I work at other studios or at home, I'm always getting overly distracted. When I come here, I can really focus and get something done. And if we don't get anything done, we have good conversations to replace yeah. getting that yeah. stuff yeah. done. Yeah, we've done that fantastic. before. Yeah. 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 And then yeah. when I turn up, it becomes like <laughs> another thing. <laughs> another thing. Well, that was great. And thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this? I mean, it is going to be no, well, probably edited down a bit, but... yeah. I reckon if people just get online and have a look at the the exhibition online and this is the NGV. see all the different make you know making and creating and um, I think all of those images are online. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's pretty amazing. Okay. Thanks, guys. No worries. Yeah. Thank you. This was Artery with Isa Cavegia a podcast on art, authorship and anthropology, supported by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council. Hope to speak with you again soon.